0: be with you. Let us pray. pray. Holy God, you have put within us a capacity to learn and a longing to understand. Therefore, we begin this academic year with gratitude for this place, St. Olaf College, where we can strive together to learn and grow, and for the legacy of scholars researchers, teachers, artists who have gone before us and enriched our lives, and for your spirit among us, nudging us on from knowledge to wisdom, from understanding to compassion, from mere interest in the world to loving it and caring for it as you love and care for us. We are grateful for the promise of this new year and ask your blessing on us, today and always. Amen. Please remain standing to sing the hymn, two stanzas, as they are printed on the insert.
1: Please be seated. Good morning. Good morning. It's my pleasure to welcome you all to the opening convocation of the 2007-2008 two, academic year. The past two weeks have been replete with welcomes. We welcomed new staff, new faculty, new transfer students, new international, new exchange students, new domestic students, Last night, students who'd been on off-campus study trips were welcomed back. We've had ceremonial beginnings, opening banquet for the faculty and staff, opening faculty meeting. In short, we've said welcome about as many times and in as many ways as we can. So why am I up here welcoming again? Because the opening convo marks the first time that the entire St. Olaf community, students, faculty, staff, emeriti, all gathers together to mark the beginning of the academic year by reflecting together on an important intellectual question thus while it's important to be serial welcomers as we have been in late august and early september this is when it really begins we have gathered classes have begun we are embarked on the intellectual work of the college it's a good thing welcome Now I'm honored to introduce to you Tyler Hauger, class of 08, president of the Student Government Association. Tyler is a senior political science and religion double major from Bismarck, North Dakota. He served as a three-year member of the Student Senate, public relations director for SGA, treasurer of the student congregation, and co-president of the Christian Activities Network. Beyond campus, Tyler represented North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota, on the ELCA's American National Youth Board. He's a member of the Lutheran Peace Fellowships Board of Directors. And he represented the United States and the ELCA as a steward at the World Council of Churches International Assembly in Brazil. Tyler spent the summer working at Glacier National Park in Montana and traveling to Israel with 10 other student government leaders from the United States. His goal for this year is to study hard, And to win a sand volleyball intramural championship with his team, the freaking awesomes, (laughs) he plays the position of the official tall, blonde, lanky kid, Tyler Hauger.
2: President Anderson, Dean May, Professor Santuri, esteemed members of the faculty, staff, and students of St. Olaf College, on behalf of the Student Government Association, I bid you a warm welcome to a new year. This time of year is always an interesting mix of emotions for most people when they get back to campus. There's kind of this new excitement in the air of so many new things to to get ready for, but there's also a very distinct wow, where have these years gone every single time something new starts? For example, am I really a first year in college now? Or am I really a 14-year chemistry professor at St. Olaf already? Or am I really about to leave this place in nine months already? Well, as I ponder this, it's really easy for me to start thinking back at some of the memories that have shaped who I am. For example, my mom constantly reminds me of times when I was a kid. I was apparently a little ruckus child, I guess if that's what you can call it. But my family lived in a small brown duplex on the corner of the two busiest streets in what is known as the urban metropolis of Bismarck, North Dakota. <laughs> At the time, I was an uncanny child with the odd desire to meet as many people as I possibly could. While most kids my age were playing with colorful toys, I would crawl onto the couch in our living room where there was a big window overlooking the street. And I would crawl up on the couch, and I would press my nose up against the window. And I would wave as if my life depended on it, saying hello to every single person, hi, hi, hi. From, from unsus- unsuspecting passerbys, to dogs, to kids, to people in cars, to the Tupperware lady, they all received my gracious welcome. Well, let's skip forward a few years. I remember being 18 years old, driving eight hours in a minivan, so packed with things getting ready for college that my brothers and I literally had to sit on it to make it fit. My stomach was filled with butterflies as I realized this is finally it. I was finally moving to St. Olaf as a first year. We turned off I-35 and turned onto Highway 19 and my nose pressed, once again, pressed up on the glass as I watched Moan and Larson getting closer. Now, I remember a big grin growing across my face, and I couldn't even figure out why. There was a sheer joy of that new excitement in the air and and that distinct feeling of something new. It's like I'd spent so many years peering out of that window, looking to what's outside. But now, it was here. I was outside that window. Well, this year is also here, a new year, fresh and vibrant, and it's easy to feel that new energy. I think we all have those moments when we're growing up, when we realize things are different, things are changing, and things will be much different than they ever were. And for whatever reason, this time of the year always seems to have those same emotions. We stand here today as a community, as individuals bringing our own time, our own talents. But as global citizens, as OLIs, we stand here together. Things are changing yet we can be filled with so much hope and so much joy in knowing that what lies outside that glass window that we press our nose against will be even more exciting and even more amazing. For me, not much has necessarily changed since I was a two-year-old. I still run around outside waving at people going, hi, hi, hi. And even to the Tupperware lady, she sometimes gets creeped out. But things have changed too. We're not kids anymore. I'm not a kid anymore and now St. Olaf, I call St. Olaf home. As we begin a new year together as a community, I challenge each one of us to step outside of our picture windows, to take new steps, make new footprints, while remembering and cherishing the things that make St. Olaf so great. Go on a calf date with someone you don't really know, sit outside the library, watch the sunset with your friends, or actually get the courage to get to know your professors because they're real people. As this new year begins, don't just stare at St. Olaf behind a pane of glass, but instead, strive to make your own footprints in this community that we call St. Olaf. And if we do this together, I know this is going to be a great, great, great year. Thank you.
3: Thank you Tyler for those good words. It is now my distinct pleasure to introduce to you our convocation speaker for today, Professor Edmund Santuri of the Religion and Philosophy Departments. A member of the Saint Olaf faculty since 1980, Professor Santuri has led a distinguished career as a teacher and scholar, the impressive and salient points of which are listed on the back page of your program. This morning, however, I would like to elaborate on some aspects of Ed's work at St. Olaf, not adequately detailed in that published biography, that have made a significant difference in the life of our community. I will pass over without mention Ed's well-known prowess in sending email messages five of which can be issued from his computer before a response is possible. (laughs) Or his growing passion for organ music, which Lady Fate has rewarded by coincidentally arranging the installation of our new Holtkamp organ directly above his office. (laughs) Rather, and with all joking aside, I would like to note Ed Santuri's devoted service as director of our Great Conversation Program for the past decade, during which time this extraordinary program has expanded both in size and reputation to become not only one of St. Olaf's most popular courses of study, but also one of our signature programs as acknowledged by countless peers across the country. Secondly. I must mention Ed's reputation as a great teacher, not only in that program, but in religion and ethics courses as well. Not a semester goes by in which St. Olaf students do not communicate to me, in my capacity as dean of the faculty, about the intense and inspirational teaching that they have experienced in the classroom of Ed Santuri. And thirdly, and most relevant for our purposes on this occasion, I would like to acknowledge the characteristic energy and zeal with which Ed has planned and organized events surrounding this semester's theme, Liberal Arts in Times of War, as a part of our larger two-year theme, Global Citizenship and the Liberal Arts. Indeed, I urge you to visit the website and take note of the many activities that have been arranged by Ed for this year in which I hope you will all participate. Of course, Professor Santuri's address today, Liberal Arts, General Petraeus, and the Counterinsurgency Manual, is aimed at inaugurating this semester's theme. And I look forward to hearing his thoughts on this provocative subject. Please join me in welcoming Professor Ed Santuri to the podium to address our convocation.
4: Thank you. Thanks, Jim, for those generous remarks. Um, and thanks for the invitation to uh, speak to this group this morning. Those who know and love me best, people like Professor Jolien Varjaste the French Department and my daughter Alyssa, will tell you that I'm not very good about taking vacations, including summer vacations. I love beaches, but I haven't been to one in years. And as to beach reading, I'm afraid that the closest I got to that this summer was a book on the Normandy invasion. (laughs) And I only got close to that, never got around to reading it. (laughs) However, having in mind my fall course on the ethics of war and our special college theme for this term, liberal arts in times of war, I did get to read on my summer vacation as it were a number of books and articles on war, works by military strategists, historians, philosophers, theologians, and ethicists. Of all the things I read, the most intriguing, somewhat to my own surprise, was this text. First released in December 2006, the U.S. Army and Marine Corps Counterinsurgency Field Manual, the writing of which was supervised by General David Petraeus the current military commander of the U.S. Armed Forces in Iraq. As you might surmise, there had been earlier American Army and Marine counterinsurgency manuals, but they hadn't been revised for decades, and counterinsurgency doctrine, oddly enough, had not been a principal focus of American military training since the war in Vietnam. However, as a response to the insurgency in Iraq, a new interim manual was produced in Fall 2004 and then a complete rewriting and overhaul finished in December 2006 under the supervision of General Petraeus. When this joint Army-Marine revision was issued by one account, there were, within two months, over two million downloads of the document on the internet. The University of Chicago Press decided to come out with a special edition of the manual that included commentaries by a number of experts. That edition appeared this summer and has elicited considerable response. Now it might be tempting to read this manual with Petraeus' name attached. There's little more than a blueprint or ideological legitimation for the current surge strategy in Iraq. If you take this line, and particularly if you're against the surge, then you might be inclined to dismiss the manual mainly as political or military propaganda aimed at the current crisis. That would be a mistake in my opinion. What everyone thinks about the current surge strategy in Iraq, or for that matter, the overall wisdom of the Iraq intervention, It seems that the issue of U.S. involvement in counterinsurgency war is likely to be a pressing matter for the remainder of our lifetimes, and the manual directs our attention to the question of counterinsurgency generally, not just the question of counterinsurgency in Iraq. The manual contains many significant items on which one might comment, but among the most interesting in my view, certainly among the most controversial, is a specific proposal about the conditions necessary for success in counterinsurgency war a proposal that reflects the current state of the question among military theorists. The proposal revolves around the observation that successful counterinsurgency requires the support of the indigenous civilian population, that counterinsurgency, therefore, should focus less on destroying enemy insurgents and more on gaining the support of the indigenous population against the insurgency. But the support of the indigenous civilian population for a counterinsurgency military effort naturally requires winning the hearts and minds of that population. And such can be accomplished only if the indigenous civilian population feels that the counterinsurgency force is really on its side, is really committed to maintaining its security and promoting its welfare. But for this to happen in the logic of the manual, the counterinsurgency force has to wage the war with great care. For example, example, never when engaging insurgent combatants, never directly intending harm to indigenous noncombatants, and just as important, doing all that it can to minimize harm to innocent noncombatant bystanders. And here's the central controversial point. In taking due care to protect noncombatants in counterinsurgency warfare, the manual insists, Soldiers, counterinsurgency soldiers, that is American soldiers, have to be willing to put themselves at risk. As Sarah Sewell of the Harvard Carr Center for Human Rights points out in her first rate introductory essay in the Chicago edition, what we have here in the manual is a rejection of what has come to be called the doctrine of radical force protection, a doctrine that has dominated American military policy in recent years a doctrine often associated with General Colin Powell and the so-called Powell Doctrine, and has come to be connected with what some historians have named the American way of war, characterized by one such historian as follows, quote, war that annihilates the enemy, war that relies on advanced technology and massive firepower to minimize casualties among US forces, war that calls on legions of citizen soldiers, war that results in total victory, end of quote. It is this alleged American way of war that is apparently rejected by General Petraeus and the counterinsurgency manual. And one feature of that rejection is precisely its rejection of the doctrine of radical force protection. As I've suggested already, the manual frequently presents this rejection of the doctrine of radical force protection as a counsel of prudence. In this logic, if you want to win a counterinsurgency war, then your soldiers are going to have to be willing to sacrifice themselves, not just for the sake of fellow American citizens or comrade soldiers, but also for the sake of the security and well-being of other peoples, the indigenous peoples' non-combatants. Otherwise, you risk losing the support of the population and thus the war. Indeed, in moments, Sewell seems to read the manual exclusively in these practical prudential terms. Its proposal for increased acceptance of soldier risk, she says in an essay that appeared just before the manual's publication, is, quote, an operational requirement, not a normative preference, end of quote. And I think what she means by this, though it's not entirely clear, is that the manual's argument for troop risk-taking is fundamentally pragmatic rather than moral or principled. But if this is Sewell's meaning, I think she overstates, and in moments the prudential interpretation is qualified by some of her very own characterizations. At any rate, in my reading of the manual, its proposal about increased soldier risk taking for the sake of minimizing non-combatant harm is not simply a matter of pragmatics. It's also a matter of moral principle, a matter of soldierly obligation, a matter of military honor. After all, the proposal for increased risk assumption is included in a section entitled The Ethics of Counterinsurgency Operations. In this interpretation, morally speaking, Soldiers must be willing to risk themselves in substantial measure for the sake of persons who are not Americans, on ethical grounds, not simply pragmatic or prudential grounds. American soldiers must be willing, for example, to open the door of a civilian dwelling, which might be the source of enemy fire, and look in first before blasting away, even though they heighten the risk of being killed themselves by so doing. This is what it means morally to be a soldier, the manual seems to say. To a considerable extent, on this matter, the manual reflects the influence of discussions and writings about counterinsurgency within the military. But what I find absolutely fascinating is that as a moral proposal, the manual reflects at least implicitly the influence of theory and discussion that have their origins in the academy, in the liberal arts, and more particularly in a line of debate inaugurated by the publication in 1977 of Michael Walter's book, Just and Unjust Wars. Michael Walzer was and is an academic, a political philosopher and theorist, originally at Harvard, now at Princeton. He was never in the military, never fought in a war. Quite the contrary, the experience that led to his writing this book was his involvement in the protest movement against the war in Vietnam. By his own explanation, Walzer and others were looking at the time for a moral vocabulary to frame contentions over the war. And what he found eventually was the just war tradition, which in his account was a tradition of moral wisdom whose voice had been muted by the dominance of a kind of amoral political realism in the academic study of international relations and in foreign policy. In his book, Walter addressed quite explicitly, among other things, the matter of force protection as a moral question. According to him, if a particular military operation was to be justified morally, one must be able to say that all reasonable measures were taken by the military operatives to diminish the prospects of noncombatant deaths, even if the measures taken required that soldiers assume increased risk to themselves. Morally speaking, Walzer seemed to say, soldiers are not just American soldiers and American citizens, they are also global citizens. They are obliged to risk themselves, not only for their compatriots, but for all human beings. Now there are all sorts of questions begged by Walter's moral position, questions having to do with ethical theory, the historical interpretation of just war tradition, and any number of other things. But the central point I'm making here is that the influence of this academic intellectual, this political philosopher, this liberal artist, if you will, on the counterinsurgency manual appears to have been quite substantial in the matter I have identified. If I had time, and I don't this morning, I could give you a train of references that move from Walter's book to Petraeus' manual. I will mention that when I was at the Naval Academy in summer 2004 for an NEH institute on just war in the 21st century, Walzer's influence on thinking in the military academies was manifest. In sum, we have here, for better or worse, a case of liberal arts reflection, academic reflection, appearing to have had a substantial impact on the course of developments in counterinsurgency doctrine and the Petraeus Manual particularly. Of course, those of us in the liberal arts who are teaching, thinking, writing, and learning about matters bearing on war can hardly aspire reasonably to the kind of direct influence political philosopher Michael Walter achieved in this case, if I am correct in my reading of that influence. But we need not hope to achieve that kind of direct influence in aspiring to something perhaps just as important, if not quite so dramatic, namely an indirect, long-term, subtle influence. It's interesting to note that in another writing, an essay published very recently in 2002, Walter relates that when he was a graduate student in the 50s and 60s, the ethics of war was hardly discussed at all, either in politics or academic political science. Just war theory, he says, and I quote, quote, was relegated to religion departments, theological seminaries, and a few Catholic universities, end of quote. But Vietnam, he adds, changed all this, and he goes on to talk about what he calls the triumph of just war theory. That is, in his view, its rightful prominence in current public discussions, both academic and political. What Walter does not say, and what he might have said, was that just war theory, as one insistence that morality matters in reflection on war, that just war theory was kept alive by religion departments, theological seminaries, and a few Catholic universities, even if it seemed moribund in political science departments and international political discourse generally. Indeed, just war theory's general resurgence in larger spheres may reflect as much the influence of Christian theological ethicists like Paul Ramsey as it does the influence of secular political theorist Michael Walzer. That's an argument for another time, and I'm sure my colleagues in political science will want to join that argument with me at some point. But I think there is a general lesson here for the liberal arts, for in certain moments the charge of liberal arts communities may be to keep a certain discourse going, even if few on the outside seem to be listening or talking that kind of talk. Beyond such considerations, is another kind of indirect influence to which the liberal arts reasonably aspire. For all of us in this liberal arts community are citizens enjoined to deliberation about matters of war and peace. And if liberal arts does what it ought to do, it serves, among other things, as a training ground for citizenly deliberation. Goodness knows, and it hardly needs saying, there is much about which to deliberate. In General Petraeus' counterinsurgency manual, not only reflects the influence of liberal arts and citizenly deliberation, as I've tried to show, it also invites further such deliberation. In the proposals, it offers in the questions it begs. Among the questions begged, is it just? Is it fair to expect that American troops be willing to sacrifice themselves and their American comrades for non-Americans and all counterinsurgency belligerencies? Some have argued that American soldiers, when they join the military, contract to take risks in defense of American interests. And that to expect them to take such risks where American interests are not clearly served or for strictly humanitarian purposes is to ask them to sacrifice beyond the terms of the contract. Others would argue that the moral obligation of soldiers to risk themselves for the sake of non-combatants, even enemy non-combatants, is grounded in universal human rights or transcendent moral tradition and is not contingent on contract. Another question begged by the manual. Is it humanly, psychologically realistic to expect that soldiers will sacrifice themselves in this way in the context of a counterinsurgency war? In this regard, it's interesting to note the results of a late 2006 military survey of American soldier and marine attitudes toward battlefield ethics in Iraq. In that survey, when asked whether all noncombatants should be treated with dignity and respect, 38% of all marines and 47% of all soldiers answered yes. Indeed, 17% of both groups uh, said that all Iraqi non-combatants should be treated as though they were Iraqi insurgents. And when asked whether they would report a unit member for injuring or killing an innocent non-combatant, only 40% of the Marines and 55% of the soldiers said they would report a unit member for killing innocent non-combatants. General Petraeus was sufficiently concerned by the results to write a letter to the troops in May of 2007, urging them to fight the war with honor. in fairness to Petraeus, the survey covers a time before his taking full command and before his principles of counterinsurgency operation were put into effect. Still, it is not perverse to ask whether it is realistic to expect, under the extreme conditions of war and counterinsurgency war particularly, whether it is realistic to expect soldierly sensitivities and behaviors sufficient to win moral hearts and minds. After all, in the American Civil War, General Sherman proclaimed, quote, war is cruelty and you cannot refine it end of quote, as he rejected a plea for mercy in the disposition of Confederate non-combatants. And after the war, by some accounts, he's reputed to have said now famously that war is hell. And though one must note that for just war proponents like Walzer, the war is hell appeal can never serve to justify or excuse across the board soldier brutality toward non-combatants, certain other perspectives prompt pessimism about what is genuinely possible for human beings subject to such hellish conditions. One thinks here of the ancient Greek historian Thucydides writing about the morally disorienting effect of civil war and its participants in Coursera and in the rest of Greece during the Peloponnesian War. Or in our own time, Dave Grossman, erstwhile West Point social psychologist, who writes about what it takes to get people to kill other people in war and the effect that such has on their personalities. Or Chris Hedges, a contemporary journalist who gives us a relentless account of the morally debilitating effects of belligerency in his book, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, and who has recently co-authored an essay reporting alleged instances of American American brutality toward non-combatants in Iraq. Such considerations drive us to the deeper questions begged by the counterinsurgency manual, questions that might be pressed by radical pacifists who, out of principle conviction or sheer horror, reject war as such or by thinkers like Daniel Maguire, a Catholic moral theologian who affirms just war theory in principle, but deconstructs it in fact, arguing that more often than not the theory serves as ideological legitimation for imperial ambitions and de facto indiscriminate slaughter. Of course, just war theory's theorists counter vigorously that a theory's abuse doesn't argue against its truth, and that moral principle, for example the moral principle of the manual, must be reaffirmed in response to every violation. Finally, there are those who worry that the manual's very moral scrupulosity impedes military effectiveness and that there is immorality in that. The problem, as Sewell cleverly describes this position, is not that the manual won't be applied, but that it will be. Again, it is argued against just war theory. War is hell. Let them fight with full force and get it over with. If there's an ethic of war, that's it. In this view, the American way of war is the moral way of war. I'm reminded here of a speech by one presidential candidate just a few weeks ago. In that speech, the candidate decried rules of engagement that subjected American soldiers to heightened risk. There would be only one rule of engagement, he proclaimed, if he were elected president. We win, you lose, he said. These are just some of the issues that General Petraeus's counterinsurgency manual invites us to consider. They are issues that may not be fit subject matter for beach reading, and students and faculty, particularly this morning, may wonder whether the issues are fit subject matter for a convocation address that helps to launch the college community in the first week of classes. In response to such wonderment, I will resist the very real, if perverse, temptation to draw detailed analogies between the first week of classes and counterinsurgency warfare. Naturally, unless you are enrolled in my Ethics of War course or something like it, you will mainly in the next week or so especially be focused on other things. But in this term devoted to the theme, Liberal Arts in Times of War, you are invited to attend the various special events planned and from your own distinctive liberal arts locations to reflect on some of the questions posed here as well as others like them. If and when you enter into such reflection, you might consider it the following liberal arts cautionary notes. One, beware of the perils of abstraction. Most of us in this community who think about war have not experienced it, felt it in any painfully primitive way. That fact may warp our thinking. Two, beware of the perils of emotivism. Emotional horror over war, generally, or vehement indignation over a terrorism that incites war may be an ingredient in a comprehensive evaluation of war but might also fall short of a fully settled, reasonable response to the reality of war. Three, beware of self-interest in argument. Do you personally profit from the view of war you take? If so, maybe reconsider. Four, beware of the comforts of intellectual conformity. Is the view of war you take the view of your family members, friends, classmates, teachers, students, colleagues, political party, religious community, Is it the cool thing to think? If so, maybe reconsider. Five, beware of the perils of prophetic perversity, the inclination to adopt a position just because it goes against the grain. Six, beware of privileging the old over the new or the new over the old. Neither is necessarily better than the other. Seven, and finally, think with a sense of irony with the realization that some of the most cherished of our current convictions may turn out to be profoundly wrong, and indeed that the most well-informed, well-intended of our decisions and actions may produce the very result we are trying to prevent. Theologically interpreted, our painful sense of irony about ourselves, Reinhold Niebuhr once wrote, is our sense that there's divinity out there laughing at us. More recently, Former colleague, theologian Robert Jensen, suggested in his typically wry way that if there is cosmic laughter over our ironies, it's more likely the devil rather than God who mocks us. Whatever the score on that matter, whatever cosmic laughter we might hear as we contemplate ruefully the ironies that render foolish our projects, we might also recall that Jesus wept over Jerusalem, and we live in the hope that there might be some redemption of our ironies in that fact. Thank you and have a good year.
1: Thank you, Professor Santori. I'd invite everyone to rise as you're able and sing the college hymn.
2: among nations, for peace in your hearts and throughout the whole creation, may God grant you patience in spirit, persistence in your work, and unrelenting hope. Amen.